The conference is free. Call 843-525-0089. 525-0089. WAGP Buford. Our thanks to Bill Clark and Pam Blackshear of the law firm of Clark & Stevens for their support of WAGP. Clark & Stevens specializes in real estate, personal injury, family law, and estate planning. Serving the Lowcountry for over 21 years, Clark & Stevens has offices at 60 Arrow Road on Hilton Head and 25 Clark Summit Drive in Bluffton. Clark & Stevens can be contacted at 843-842-3500. Welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. This is an opportunity for us to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. And if you have a particular question that you would like to email us, you can uh, here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Or you can call us toll free for those outside of the immediate area. That number is 877-WAGP980. Uh, uh, or you can call us locally again at 525-1859. And when you call, you can dictate your question or go on the air live, however you'd like to give it to us. Some people prefer the anonymity, and we'll do whatever we can to help you so that your question can get answered. Rick, I think someone's already called and uh, emailed a, a question and uh, or dictated it to Deb, and a number of email questions have come in, so let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, Pastor. A person would like to have you explain Genesis 18. Um, a non-believer asked this person about how a loving God could punish the innocent along with the guilty. Uh, also, is this chapter the basis for our legal basis of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, uh, I can't answer the latter question, whether um, people have used this as a, a basis for our legal system. I've never heard that before. Maybe someone could shed some light, but I can't answer the biblical question that you're asking in reference to um, why the uh, righteous, uh, why the unrighteous are, are wiped out. Genesis 18 and 19, of course, is a a dual chapter. You cannot separate the two. And um, when Abraham has this dialogue with God, he goes through a series of questions: Will thou sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou sweep it away and not spare for the place, uh, for the sake of the 50 righteous that are in it? And they go on and on and on. It goes all the way down to, you know, Lord, be patient. Don't get angry with me. Um, But he says, um, what if there's only 10 righteous in the city? 
And God's response is, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. If Lot had just won his own family members, uh, he would have saved Sodom from destruction. Do the math. You can see who, who, which daughters are married, which ones are not, so on. And, and you discover through son-in-laws and everything, it actually adds up to 10. But he couldn't win his own family to Christ. Now, God was merciful. Um, when you go through the whole chapter, of course, there's Lot, there's Lot's wife, there's Lot's son-in-law, there's Lot's uh, married daughter um, in 1912 that's mentioned, there's Lot's uh, sons, uh, which are two plus, and so, um, and Lot's unmarried daughters, which are two in number, and their fiancés, so you get a total of 10. But he couldn't touch his own family for the Lord. And so even in that, God is merciful and sends warning right at the end to Lot and to his family. Uh, But there's not a lot of response. His sons-in-laws thought he was jesting, that he was just uh, making fun. And even his own wife, of course, which Jesus uh, quotes one of the shorter verses in the Bible in Luke's gospel uh, he said, remember Lot's wife. She looked back. Her heart was in Sodom and not with the Lord. And so she became a pillar of salt. Uh, but God is merciful. God is long suffering. You know, when you think of the Canaanites, uh, God said, I'm waiting for the iniquity of the Canaanites to be full. Uh, and so 400 years went by and the Canaanites never repented. And so God sends Joshua in the conquering army of Israel in to destroy the Canaanites in the promised land. It's not like God didn't give them a chance. God is long suffering. He's patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And of course, Sodom had become such a wicked place. It was so vile, so filthy um, that God personifies their sin as actually reaching up to heaven as a cry. Uh, you know, I hear the sin of Sodom in, in, in heaven's place. Uh, it's crying out. Um, it is so vile and so filthy. And so at this point, much like in the flood, where God brings a total destruction, he brings a total destruction on the Sodomites of, of uh, Genesis 19. So if you wonder how God feels about sodomy, just read Genesis 19. There's a lot of deceived Christians today because they know sodomites. They have lesbian and homosexual friends who are great people. Of course, you know, we're not saying that people can't be nice and have a good personality any more than someone who lives in adultery can't be a nice, honest person. But God hates this sin as like, as he hates the sin of adultery. And so he brings judgment on the city for that reason. But again, God's heart is uh, towards compassion. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved, but not all will be saved because not all will respond. And sometimes when God brings this kind of just punishment, it's an act of mercy uh, on the children who are yet to be born uh, through such wicked, vile people. So, Uh, Again, God is just. Will not the God of the universe, will not the God of the earth do justice? Moses asks, and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. That's 877-924-7980. Or email us, as this person has, 
to tbl at wagp.net. They would like you to explain predestination and free choice. They write, I understand it's not an easy topic. I believe man has a free choice to receive God's free gift after he's drawn by God and given the ability by the Holy Spirit through Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The hyper-Calvinist loves to use Ephesians 1 for this argument. From doing some basic Bible study methods, I understand this to be speaking of a predestined work of the church and not predestined individuals. Am I all wet on this, or is this correct? And if it is individuals, then the rest of Scripture becomes very vague on the matter. Uh, Thank you for your time, and God bless. Well, I think you're all wet on it in reference to Ephesians 1, because that particular chapter is dealing with uh, God's call uh, on individuals. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, he elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The emphasis here is on God's work, God's call, uh, primarily to holiness, so that we, as the second chapter um, really describes, becomes trophies of the grace of God. So the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. You, you cannot say the Bible does not teach election. That's not the issue. The issue is not does God elect. The issue is on what basis does God elect. That's the real corker question. And so, for instance, when Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Uh, The word foreknowledge is used four times, prognosco, in the New Testament. Two places without any debate at all. It's talking about God's prior knowledge that what God, knowing what was going to happen beforehand, he makes a decision. In the other two places, I think that's a safe assumption. But again, the hyper-Calvinist wants to dissect Scripture to defend his uh, false viewpoint. And he'll make foreknowledge God lovingly choosing some before the creation of the world to, uh, to be saved and overlooking or some teaching double predestination uh, mitigating some to um, be forever damned. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a distorted doctrine. Um, I believe what the Scripture says, that it's according to the prognosco. We get our word gnosis, knowledge, the pre-knowledge of God, he makes the choice. So here's God in eternity past. He looks down the corridors of time. Man is dead in his sin. There's not some spark in man where you can take credit and say, oh, you know, independently of the Lord, I came to know God as my Savior. No, by his doing, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus. No man can boast in any merit or spark left in himself because dead men can't respond. We're dead in trespasses and sins. It's the doctrine of total depravity. It's not that man is as bad as he can be, but he's as bad off as he can be. It's not that man can't do good. He can, but he's not as good as he should be. Every aspect of man, his eyes, his his ears, his mouth, his feet, his body, his spiritual being, as Romans 3 indicates, 10 to 18, has been infiltrated and soiled by sin. So God, in his mercy, takes the initiative Uh, We love God because he first loved us, John will write. And so God works in the hearts of men. 
Uh, he convicts the world, as Jesus said, through the spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so God, in his prior knowledge, looks down the corridors of time. He sees how people respond either to general revelation or to the specific revelation given through God the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the person in preaching on, on Jesus Christ. And he sees whether or not men will respond. And so before the foundation of the world, God can choose us based on his foreknowledge. And so, you know, sometimes we say someone's saved and we'll say, well, a new name is written down in glory. Well, not really. A check mark was put next to the name because three times in the Revelation, the Bible tells us before the foundation of the world, God wrote the names of everyone who would be saved. Listen, if God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. But that doesn't speak against free choice, free will. You are still a free moral agent. You're not some pre-programmed robot where God uh, pre-programmed your spiritual nature so that you would become a believer. No, God uh, gave you a free will. God initiated, uh, gave you revelation through whatever uh, expression that might take, and then he saw how you would respond. And if you hardened your heart, then uh, indeed there will be no one to blame when you're in hell forever but yourself. So I think a more controversial passage becomes Romans 9. And Romans 9 is the passage that is often confused. Romans 9 is not dealing with individual election. It's dealing with national election. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Where's that quoted? It's from Malachi chapter 1. What's the context? He's speaking about two nations. He's talking about the descendants of Edom versus the descendants of Jacob. And uh, do you really love us, God? Uh, There's a series of questions that are asked all the way through Malachi, and he presents these questions. He posits them in front of the reader and says, well, here's what you're asking. Then I'm going to give you a divine answer. So, yes, God loves Israel. He chose Israel. But when you're dealing with guys like John Calvin, who are basically Roman Catholic in their theology, when it comes to their understanding of the church— what we call ecclesiology, ecclesia, the called out ones, typically used in the New Testament to speak of the church, though not exclusively. Uh, But in his ecclesiology, he believes, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that they have replaced national Israel, that God has no future for the Jew, that under the new covenant, the new Israel, as he would say, has usurped the reign that God has on national Israel. And uh, the idea probably in kernel form came from St. Augustine, uh, but it certainly was picked up by Calvin and Luther. And so Augustine, Calvin, and Luther wrote some absolutely disgraceful comments. They're embarrassing when you go into the Holocaust Museum, either in Washington, D.C., or in Israel, and you see their statements posted up there and the anti-Semitism that they expressed, it's just embarrassing to Christianity. But uh, they believed that God was done with the Jewish people and uh, that the church was the new Israel. Now, in Roman Catholicism, it's the organized Roman Catholic Church, and Calvin and Luther is thinking it's those who are born again. But God's not done with national Israel. And that's the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Listen, if you just read 9, 10, and 11 as a unit, and you said to someone, okay, read this, give me in one word what the subject is about, they would say, Israel. It's about the Jew. 
That's precisely what it is about. In Romans 9, it deals with Israel's election. Romans 10, with Israel's rejection. Romans 11, with Israel's restoration. It's about Israel. He's not dealing with personal election. So when you get that straight, then you come down to just a handful of other passages, like in Ephesians, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Well, then it becomes an issue, not does God elect, but on what basis? And he elects on his prognosco, his foreknowledge. And again, there are clear examples where nobody debates where the word prognosco means prior knowledge. And to make it mean something else in passages like Ephesians 1, I think is a distortion of Scripture, and it's a blight on the character of Almighty God. I know those folks mean well, and I love them. Love them in the Lord. I just disagree with them. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller says that he has been told that Ruth's lineage included David and then ultimately our Savior. Is it true that she was of a different tribe or nation and then thus not a Jew? Well, um, you might want to listen to my series on the book of Ruth. And I don't know if that's posted online right now or, or yet. No, I don't, it's been a long time since we've played it. But what, what we've played in the last couple of years in the Search the Scriptures series, uh, as soon as it's played, it's posted online so you can listen to it. But you could call the uh, Search the Scriptures and order the final tape on the book of Ruth. Um, but yes, uh, if you read carefully the lineage in Matthew chapter 1, to Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, Jacob Judah and his brothers, to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We've been studying about those uh those two children, those twins uh, that came through an illicit relationship with Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadad, and to Aminadad, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. Oh, here it comes. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, uh, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. So you've got Boaz, who's a Jew, who marries a Moabitess named Ruth, and together they have a son named Obed. And Obed ultimately fathers David's daddy named Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. So yes, she was a Moabitess, but she marries a Jew. Understand Jewish people are Jews in one of two ways. One, either a direct uh, physical descendant of Abraham, and of course, in John 8, you had Jews who said, oh, you know, we're children of Abraham. You know, we're, we descended from our father. And Jesus said, ah, if you are really true Jews, really children of Abraham, then you would do the works that Abraham did. Uh, as it is, he said, you are of your father, the devil. So uh, there's that kind of Jew, and some people somehow thought that because they were physically descended from the nation, that that made them automatically righteous before God, and and uh, the Lord Jesus totally dispelled that myth. So one way to be a Jew is certainly just by being a descendant of Abraham. Another way to become a Jew is to be converted to the religion. And so you have people today who... Um, Generic, uh, excuse me, genetically are, are Jewish people, but in terms of religion, they're they're not. Uh, they just haven't been following the ways of Judaism. And then you've got passages like the Book of Esther, chapter eight, where you find uh, God sovereignly uh, through the king uh, protecting the Jewish people and. 
and God is faithful, and it leads to the conversion of some Gentiles. And so in Man, it, we read in Ezra 8, in verse, uh, let's see here, it is 17, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen upon them. So you've got Gentiles who become Jews. How is that possible? Because they're proselytes, and they come to acknowledge through the miraculous protection of Almighty God that the one true God is the God of Israel, and they're converted. So uh, Ruth, in the truest sense, though a Moabitess um, by her lineage, by her heritage, is a Jew in terms of her belief in the one true God. So um, hope that helps and maybe answers your question. And indeed, we do have that online. Just go to searchthescriptures.podbean.com or just visit any of our websites and ask, uh, click on the Search the Scriptures uh, link there. Uh, the uh, archives, and you'll see it all there. And I walk through that in great depth in that final message in the book of Ruth. Very good. All right, Jamie from Washington State writes, uh, for quite some time, there's been a debate in the Christian community concerning age-segregated Sunday school, church, and youth groups, etc. I recently watched the video Divided, which chronicles the negative effects of this relatively recent practice. We've worshipped in both kinds of fellowships, and I was just wondering what your thoughts on this might be. Uh, and then she adds the link to that video. Well, I haven't seen the video, but I've certainly discussed this issue a number of times over the years. Uh, in the late 1950s, largely spearheaded through the Sunday school movements in uh, mainline denominations, we began to form age-segregated classes. So you had, you know, um, junior high and high school and college and, you know, 20 to 30 and 30 to 40. And of course, the larger the church, very often, uh, the more um, cut up the classes become. Now, with that said, um, I don't think that's a model that you can defend from Scripture. In fact, what you see in the Word of God is intergenerational interaction. And so there's an assumption in First John about older men and younger men and younger women and older women in terms of how they should uh, interface with one another. Uh, there is an assumption in Titus chapter 2 about older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women and that there's different uh, age groups that interact. And of course, the Bible says he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So at Community Bible Church, we don't really fully have age segregated groups. Uh, we, in our adult level, uh, do uh, intergenerational but let me just say, I don't think you can dogmatically say that it would be wrong in Sunday school to have uh, age-segregated classes for a couple of reasons. If you don't allow for interaction in terms of age and other avenues, then then you're violating Scripture. I mean, where do we find in Scripture that we should have Sunday school? Well, we don't. I mean, there's no passage that says, thou shalt have Sunday school. The biblical principle, however, is that uh, within a larger church, there were smaller uh, segments. And really, uh, this person from Washington State, let me just ask you a question just to ponder. Uh, I bet in terms of people that you hang around with, 
probably the majority of your friends are closer to your age range. Is it not? Are they not? Uh, probably. They're probably closer to your age range. You probably, if you're in your 20s, don't call this 60-year-old couple up on a regular basis and say, let's go to dinner or let's go to the beach together. More than likely, you're probably calling up people who are in your age segment. Maybe they're raising kids, you're raising kids, and you do things together. And um, that's not unnatural or distorted. It becomes distorted when you can't appreciate the different generations that God brings into the body of Christ. So my point is, is that sometimes on Sunday mornings, uh, some churches will... Uh, being all things to all men and wanting to win some uh, because initially, historically, the Sunday school was not so much a teaching arm as it was an evangelistic arm as it was really developed during the Sunday school era in the 20th century. Um, It was an evangelistic arm. And so they realized that, you know, more than likely, if you're 20, you're going to have a better chance of inviting someone to a Sunday school class that's in your age range than someone who's not. So sometimes in the church, we get these, you know, we, we take these stances and then we get real dogmatic on it and say, well, it's sinful and it's of the devil if your church has, you know, uh, segregated ages uh, for the Sunday school class. Well, you know, where do you draw that line? Well, some of the groups would say we shouldn't even have nurseries. Well, you know, okay, that's your decision. But again, if you're reaching unchurched people, and usually groups think like this, they're small churches, they're a holy huddle, they typically could care less in terms of winning people to Christ, they typically don't win anyone to Christ, and they're not engaged in the culture in terms of getting out there and bringing them into the fellowship. And so today, if you don't provide nursery and you're trying to reach unchurched people, there's a good chance you won't reach many of them. So again, it's being all things to all men that I might win some. Now, I do believe there comes a point when children should be in the worship service. And I just uh, discussed this recently in a Father's Day message you might want to listen to in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. You say, well, how old should they be? Well, there's an assumption in Ephesians when Paul's letter is read that children are in the worship service because he doesn't say uh, parents go home and tell your children to honor your father and mother. No, he says children, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He's assuming that if they're old enough to understand those words, that they're old enough to be in the worship service. And really, I don't have a problem with someone bringing their children into the worship service if they're newborns, if they want to. But if they're disruptive, you know, get up and go on out and go to one of our closed circuit TV rooms and continue to watch the service there so that you don't become disruptive and everything's done in decency and in order. So, again, you can really get extreme here sometimes in the church and out of balance. What's the overarching principle that we don't want to ignore? That there should be intergenerational exchange. And there are many ways outside of the Sunday school hour in which to accomplish that. On our adult level, we have 17 ABFs that people can choose from. Most of them are quite intergenerational. A few of them are, you know, young couples, a few... Classes tend to gravitate towards older uh, seniors, and um, but if you've got a class, say, with seniors, they need to be taught, hey, listen, 
you're not supposed to just interact with seniors. You need to invest in the next generation. That's part of your responsibility. It's part of the call that God puts on older adults. And if you are a younger person, you need to appreciate the older generation because they have wisdom that they can share and life experience. And so you should seek them out as they should seek you out. So, again, balance, uh, not legalism here, I think, is what should dictate some of our decisions. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And if you'd like to email us, you may do so at tbl at net. Our next caller says that uh, he has heard a preacher say that if a man backslides, he will have seven more demons possess him. Have you ever heard that? Well, uh, I'm assuming that they're referring to the time when Jesus talks about a man's house um, that's cleaned. Let me just turn there for just a second. It's it's found in Matthew chapter 12. And, of course, um, he's speaking in this chapter to a sin that will ultimately be initiated by the uh, Pharisees. We call it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's an awful thing. And, and uh, the Lord uh, deals with um, basically the nation of Israel. And he is speaking of the fact that on the outside they are religious, but on the inside they are lost. And there's a lot of people like that in the church, not just Jewish people in his day, but people in our day who on the outside they are religious, but on the inside they have never truly, genuinely been born of the Spirit of God. And that's an awful place in which to be. And so after he deals with what we would call the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and of course he says, uh, he, who is not, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And of course, uh, it was an unpardonable sin because, number one, they had rejected the testimony of God the Father. They had rejected the testimony about God the Son. And there was only one left who could give testimony, who could open to their open their hearts, and that's God the Holy Spirit. And when he works through the Son of God, they say, oh, the power in him is not God, it's a demon. And so they end up committing an unforgivable sin. There's no one else who can speak to their heart, and, and, and they're lost. And so anyway, at the end of the dialogue, you know, they look for a sign, and Jesus said, look, you've got all the sign you need in Jonah which typifies the uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then he says um, uh, in f- verse 42, The queen of the south shall rise up with ge- this generation of the judgment and shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. It does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in there and live. And the last state of the man shall be worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this generation. They had greater opportunity, and so, in essence, came greater judgment. 
And so the Lord's point is this, is you can clean someone up on the outside and make things look orderly, but if they haven't been changed on the inside, then you actually, because you're sinning against revelation, the revelation that he had given these people, you're actually in a worse state. Um, I don't think he's talking about backslidden Christians. He's talking about unbelieving Israel in the context that they had rejected um, the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, the world's Messiah. They'd clean themselves up on the outside, but in other places he'll call them whitewashed tombs. And because of their unresponsiveness to what God had revealed and given to them, their last state is worse than the first. That's the point of the passage. It has nothing to do with backslidden Christians, and there's nothing in the Bible that references what this particular caller is asking. Great question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. A listener has heard you say that the Sunday morning is the most segregated time in our nation. If so, is this unbiblical? Is it a sin? And is it the responsibility of the pastor like you to encourage congregants to make sure they're reaching out to all races? Well, it's not true at Community Bible Church, so I don't know what this person is asking. Um, We're we're not uh, a segregated fellowship. I think he's talking about uh, churches in general. Well, yeah, I suppose. And uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, And I don't think this is just that you you can deal with segregation on a lot of different levels. You can deal with economic segregation, racial segregation, educational segregation. What people's tendency to do, and this is why our mind needs to be renewed and changed, is they tend to reach out to people who are like themselves. Yeah, they, even in friendships, you know, oh, I like this person, he's uh, intellectual, or he's not intellectual, he's just a regular guy, or whatever your reason is for being attracted to people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are certainly people in your sphere of influence, if you pour concrete for a living and work construction, there's going to be people that you're going to meet. Versus if you're a CEO of a corporation, there's going to be other people that you meet. One is not better than the other. We need thinkers. We need planners. We need the guy who designs the bridge, and we need the people who will build the bridge. So whatever your socioeconomic educational background may be, there will certainly be people in your world that God calls you to influence and to reach out to. Uh, as of primary importance. But you need to also think beyond that because God has called us to go into all of creation. So my, my the point I'm trying to make is what happens in so many churches is if, you know, people invite people who are like themselves. And so if they're black, they invite black people. If they're white, they invite white people. If they're educated, they invite educated people. If they're non-educated, they invite non-educated people. And so the church in that respect becomes segregated. But God is not a respecter of persons, neither should we be. And God invites all men to come to himself. Acts 10 affirms that through Peter's dialogue with Cornelius and his household. And James deals with a a prejudicial spirit in the church. And again, it can take many expressions. Uh, Because uh, the thing about prejudice is it can be real slippery. You can say, well, you know, I... I like black people. I, I like Chinese people. I don't have a problem with that. But uh, but maybe um, you would only invite people who meet your economic level. Well, that's another form of prejudice. So there are many expressions of it. And I think we've encouraged it sometimes in the church. Uh, my son Jeremy, when he was at Liberty University, wrote a superb article. He wrote a number of articles there for the newspaper. And... Uh, 
he wrote an article on Rick Warren, who was speaking on the campus that week, and uh, it was basically saying, hey, listen, this is a subtle form of prejudice for a church to select a target audience. And, of course, in the seeker-sensitive church movement, we are encouraged to say, okay, who's my target audience? And so they have, uh, you know, Saddleback Sam or Saddleback Samantha, and they create this portrait of what these two people look like. Oh, they make between fifty dollars and $100,000 a year. They have this much education, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll say, these are the people we need to, to reach. And this is our target audience, and we're going to focus solely on them. Uh, I think that's awful. That, that You don't find that, and the rationale behind it is foolish. Uh, the, the, the illustrations that are given are, well, it's like a radio station. You, know, you can't play classical and hard rock and soft rock and Christian. You've got to choose your format or you're going to have no audience. Well, that may be true with a radio station, but that's not true with the church. And so when you read passages like Acts 13, you read passages like Romans 16, where you have Paul's uh, closing words to people and greetings in the church, you discover it's a wide variety of people, rich, poor, slavery, out of slavery, um, interracial. It's, it's across the board. Now, if you're living in a town that's uh, 99.9% white, you're going to see uh, a white church. Um, but within that church, that fellowship needs to ask, are we all inclusive of the white people who are in this community? Are the rich, poor, educated, uneducated? If not, then we need to think differently. We need to think outside of our selfish little puny world and reach out. Uh, we live in a community that's 38% African-American. And when I came to Community Bible Church over 20 years ago, there was uh, one black couple in the church, period. Uh, that was it. Uh, and I thought, well, look, this isn't right. We need to think outside of the box. And so I began to encourage my people. I said, look, anybody who moves is our target audience. We need to reach out to anybody who moves. They may be totally unlike you, but you need to reach them. And so when people come to Community Bible Church, they're just astounded. Uh, because it's really reflective of our culture, of our society, of our communities. Black, white, Hispanic, Chinese, Japanese, German. Uh, There's about 15 different nations that are represented. Highly educated, no education, very rich, very poor, and everything in between. And uh, if that's what the community looks like, that's what your church should strive to seek and look like as well. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us as this person has to tbl at net. She writes, I'm currently reading the book Decision-Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. It argues that the sovereign will and the moral will of God are principles taught in the Word of God, but not the traditional held individual will. His position is that we have the moral will of God to guide us in principle and practice and the freedom to choose from the many options which might present themselves within that parameter. I believe he would say that the wisdom we are to seek has already been given in the Word, and to seek after additional signs, etc., is not biblical. This person writes, I'd like to hear your take on this. The author's examples include who to marry, which school to go to, where to move, etc. Yeah, I wish I still had the paper. I wrote a 25-page review on decision-making in the will of God when I was doing my doctoral studies at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, I disagree with his basic premise. I think he's way off. Um, in 
again, I just think it's a distorted view. Now, I, I do think that there are certainly times when people can get paranoid. Uh, we go into the store and we say, well, which toothpaste should I get? Is it the will of God for me to get Crest or, um, you know, uh, Colgate, Colgate, Colgate. or, Colgate. you know, I hate those bubblegum toothpaste. I, I got to have, you know, myself a, uh, you know, some of these, um, what do you call them? Uh, it comes in a white box and uh, uh, I can't even think of the name of it, but it's slipping me. But Toothpaste? No, it's, um, they, they started putting it in toothpaste some years ago. Um, oh, chlor. Uh, <laughs> I'm just drawing a blanket. Yeah, anyway, me too. but people are out there. They're 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 talking to to, to themselves. Mm-hmm. And he means so and so. Anyway, uh, get the toothpaste that tastes the best. Get the one that's on sale for stewardship. So, are there guiding principles? Yeah, you know, God gives us different tastes. I can't help it, Rick, that you like to wear a shirt like that, <laughs> and I wear this shirt. You know, I mean, which, which tie is it the will of God for me to wear? The one that looks best, the one that matches. You know, or one the one you like. You know, I like. <laughs> Your shirt. I'm just Thanks. joking, but uh, so. Uh, but I think what he does is he takes out all personal direction for God's will, and that's ridiculous. You know, did God want me to go to Dallas Theological Seminary or Western Conservative Baptist Seminary? Well, you know, that was an important decision. Uh, did God want me to? You know, does God want you to go to Reform Theological Seminary or Westminster? That's an important decision. How are you going to know? Well, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He doesn't say don't use it, just don't lean on it. And in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's what the Bible says. God's expressions of uh, guidance can be very, very personal in the word of God. Um, In Psalm 139, just read through that Psalm and you, you talk about God ordaining our steps and uh, not, not fluoride. Deb says fluoride. No, that's, that's in all the toothpaste yeah. pretty much. Uh, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> baking soda toothpaste. Baking there soda. we go. There baking you go. soda. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the baking soda toothpaste. I can't stand these bubblegum toothpaste, mm-hmm. but, but that's me. Mm-hmm. Somebody else, oh, they love the bubblegum. They've got to have the bubblegum. Well, take the one you like. God gives you some freedom there. Uh, Take the one that works best. Make sure it has fluoride in it so there's uh, good stewardship of the body. So there's some overarching principles. But, you know, Friesen's uh, premise, well, you know, there's two Christian women. Uh, They're both born again. They're both committed. Marry the one you want to marry. Well, I'd say that's a half-truth. Does God want you to marry one over the other? He'd say, no, just whatever your choice. Well, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The thought there in that psalm is the desires that you have in your heart will originate from God as you delight in him. So God would say, yeah, I want you to marry Mary over Sally or Audrey over, you know, whoever. Um, God gives you the desires that he wants you to have as you are delighting yourself in him. So I think Friesen's way off. He wrote that book, I think, in around 81, 83, somewhere in that time frame. And uh, that guy was just, he was wrong. And, and, and some other theological decisions he made in there about tithing and other things were just really, really off. Now, I haven't had anybody ask me about Friesen's book in probably a decade. But uh, I, I don't even know if it's, the, it's still in print. 
But um, anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. By the way, that person that called about the seven more demons, uh, call back and thank you for your Oh, good. Answer. I hope that helps. Great. Now, believe it or not, we've got a listener in South Africa, and they write, where does the devil come from? And he'd like you to answer with scriptures. Well, there's two um, key passages when you think about the devil. Oh, we've got a live caller. We give preference there, don't we? Let's go to that live caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, just commenting on you had talk, spoke about Rick Warren earlier. Uh, you're probably already familiar with this, but uh, Jack Van Nippy, uh parted ways with TBN and Part of the reason was him calling out Rick Warren as part of this new thing going on with churches, uh, Chrislam, combining Christianity and Islam. And I think there are a bunch of churches out there holding these services, and among them were Robert Schuler, Rick Warren, uh, Bishop Pike, and others. And I think uh, TBN had an issue with it, didn't like their pastors criticizing others. I think Jack Van Impey said they've they plead with him to come back, but he doesn't feel like it's God's will because he doesn't want anybody telling what he can and cannot preach against. But I was just wondering if you've heard this and what do you think about this whole Chrislam thing and, and Rick Warren? Well, uh, I don't want to comment it as it relates to Rick Warren, but I've heard of because I haven't read that Rick Warren is actually involved in this. So that that would be new to me. But some of the other names you mentioned, yes, indeed. I have heard of, and am I opposed to it? Of course, because there's no uh, continuity between Christianity and Islam. Uh, one's truth, the other is false. Uh, they are diametrically opposed to uh, each other in every realm of theology. So we don't share anything in common, not to mention that God's Word teaches the biblical principle of separation. So Jack Van Impe uh, was absolutely correct in saying, hey, listen, uh, it's not right for us to mix truth with error. And God's word is very clear on that, that there is a place to biblically separate. Romans, Thessalonians, uh, Second Timothy all teach that principle, that you do not mix truth with error. Uh, the book of Second John highlights the same truth where it again speaks about someone coming to your door you don't show them hospitality you don't say god bless you go on your way i hope things go well Uh, why because when you do that you condone their theology and so god's word is really clear that there is a place for biblical separation when you try to syncretize religions um, through either involvement or even through saying, well, I, we want to win them to Jesus, so we'll become like them. No, then your message is diluted. Uh, God's bigger than that. God doesn't need the trickery in the manipulations of men to bring people into the kingdom of God. We stand for what's true, for what's right. We do it in a kind, gracious, spirit-filled manner. And if men reject us, they reject us. I mean, Jesus said, beware if all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. So uh, my hat is off to Jack Van Impe if uh, he had problems with um, people trying to syncretize Christianity and Islam, because they're not close, not even near close. And to do so is to give an endorsement to a false religion that's going to lead people straight into hell. I don't know about Rick Warren that he's been involved in that, so I won't comment. But I will find out for myself, and we'll study that and 
uh, maybe can respond at another time. Let's go to the next question. All right. We have that question from South Africa about uh, where did the devil come from? And they'd like you to answer with scripture, please. Well, let me just give a couple thoughts here. I have a series of messages on angels, holy angels and elect angels. And you might want to listen to my message on fallen angels. And I talk about where did the devil come from? And so there are two key passages. Here's how you always remember it. 14 times 2 is 28. So you've got two central passages that deals with that deal with the uh, genesis of the devil, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Because in both those chapters of Scripture, the fall of Satan is described. And so uh, the devil was, prior to his fall, called Lucifer, uh, the son of the morning star. And he rebels against God Almighty. Uh, When you read through, say, Ezekiel 28, it's very, very clear that um, there's a change from the king of Tyre to uh, someone that the king, to, to prophecies that the king of Tyre could in no way fulfill. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, And so beginning in verse 11, Ezekiel begins to say things that could not possibly apply to a human being. What we have in this portion of Scripture really is a description of the evil one, of Satan, who's controlling the king of Tyre. And Satan was the true, quote-unquote, king of Tyre who motivates this human leader. And so he talks about how you were in Eden, the garden of God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That doesn't apply to the king. On the day you were created, because Satan's not God, he's not, don't deify him, he's a created being. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways. Uh, From the day you were created, that could be said of no human being, but of Adam before he fell. Because we're all born in sin, and sin did my mother conceive me until unrighteousness was found in you. And he goes on, he describes this uh, terrifying fall that he had. Isaiah gives us a little more insight with a series of five I wills. And the sin of the devil ultimately is the sin of pride. You said in your, how, let me read it to, beginning in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning one. Uh, the uh, King James says uh, Lucifer. Uh, the Greek um, could e- uh, the Hebrew could either be translated with the meaning of the word Lucifer, which means star of the morning or star of the shining one, uh, or it could be translated with the name. Uh, only the King James in the Old English takes the name. Most of the newer translation takes the meaning of the name. Who's right? They're both right. So this is the only place where the name Lucifer is found in all of Scripture. But that was Satan's name before he fell. O star of the morning, O Lucifer, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times. That was the heart of Satan's sin. It was rebellion against God. And of course, in that series and in that message I deal with on the fall of Satan that you might want to listen to to get an hour long answer to your question. I also describe those angels 
that fell with the evil one. A third of the angels of God sided with Satan, and those fallen angels today we call demons. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Uh, let's get to that one. This person writes, um, uh, they know that, uh, they dictated this, they know that Christians will be rewarded according to their works. Are there scriptures that show different levels of punishment at the great white throne of, uh, white, great, great white throne of judgment? Yeah, clearly, uh, just as um, heaven is not the same for everyone, neither is hell the same for everyone. Uh, it's different. Now, let me just say in general terms, because I don't want to soften uh, hell, and I don't want to undersell heaven. Heaven's a wonderful place for anyone who goes there. But uh, it won't be the same for everyone who goes there. There are degrees of rewards in all that that will imply in eternity. Uh, there's a lot of silence in Scripture. Certainly there seems to be an implication in terms of responsibility that you will get. But it's wonderful for anyone who goes there. Hell is an awful place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. It's an awful horrifying place of agony for anyone who goes there. But somehow in the perfect judgment and justice of God, it won't be the same. It can be worse for some people for others. Um, Passage immediately comes to mind, Luke 12, and the slave who knew his master's will did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. And so one of the points that the Lord makes is that based on the amount of revelation that you had been given, uh, hell will be met out accordingly. This passage uh, is echoed through Paul's letter to the Romans in a different way. He's speaking of the Jewish people, and he says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, that you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Literally, you're treasuring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and judgment, when God will render to every man according to his deeds. So uh, he's dealing with the Jewish people who had been given such privilege, such awesome revelation, but instead of using it as a stepping stone to get their lives right with God, they hardened their heart against the living God, and they were actually treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. So somehow, you know, people, just like they can store up treasure in heaven, they're storing up different degrees of wrath and hell. But it's awful, terrible for anyone who goes there. And so we should warn men and women and boys and girls, because time is running out, when you will be able to give no more warnings to people to escape the wrath of God to come. And if you've stopped doing that, ask God to forgive you and let him use you as an instrument of his grace. 